Distro hopping, the idea that Linux is fun and the myriad ways people put distros together should be reviewed often. My name is Moss. I live in eastern Tennessee. I'm Dale. I live in northeast Ohio. And I'm Eric. I live in southwestern Florida. Welcome to Distro Hoppers Digest. We love checking distros out. New distros, new versions of older distros, and even some we may have overlooked. We each have our preferences in complexity or desktop or package management. Perhaps we can help you find a new distro or better understand one that has piqued your curiosity. The idea of this podcast is that we each install a new distro to our chosen hardware for three to four weeks and use it as much as possible, perhaps even as our daily driver. We record all of our trials, tribulations, fixes, and what we like and what we don't. I tend to take on the more advanced distros and give them a go. Well, I tend to prefer looking at distros that would be kind to a new user, especially one who is hoping to move over from another operating system, such as Windows or Mac OS. We intend to give as much information as possible on each distro, and we will also mention what hardware we are using and might comment on how we think the hardware may affect the rating. Welcome to Distro Hopper's Digest, episode 44, recorded on July 6th, 2023. For this episode, we will be reviewing Debian 12 Cinnamon, Debian 12 Mate, and Linux Mint 21.1 Cinnamon. <music> Monthly foibles, wherein we discuss what we did this month. It's been an off month for me. After working seven days in May, my work year got over. I've been just trying to stay alive, had a few minor health issues. All the Linuxing I've done other than my podcast will have to wait until the updates section. Anyone wanting to check out the result of my last concert can check my Bandcamp page, link in the show notes. The songs are collected under the album Third Time's the Charm, referring to it being my third time at this particular online festival. Anything exciting going on with you, Dale? I wanted to take a break from configuring OpenBox on my T460, so I decided to install the Void XFCE ISO on my desktop. I moved what I was doing on my desktop to my T460 because having a usable desktop computer was a good idea. After it was installed, I started configuring it. I've been watching the Linux Cast YouTube channel quite a while. Matt has quite a few videos on theming XFCE. After re-watching them and looking through the XFCE documentation to see what is new with version 4.18, I was inspired to theme my installation. Several hours later, I finished and was very happy with the results. I disabled XFCE's compositing and used PyCom instead. It was from my experience with the open box. It allows more control over the compositing. Instead of using a panel for my open applications, I decided to use Plank. It is a simple dock with a cool wave animation like the dock on macOS, which is about the only thing I like from that OS. I shared a screenshot in our Telegram and Discord channels for your uh, viewing if you're curious. A friend was tired of using Arch-based distros and wanted to try something else. I suggested Pardis. She pushed back a little since it was Debian-based. I told her the features it had, and she was intrigued. As of this writing, she has been using it for almost a month and really likes it. She needed help with her Wi-Fi since it needed to be compiled and installed. 
She also wanted redshift. It's a uh, color temperature changer on your uh, monitor. She wanted it installed and configured. It makes it easier on your eyes for people that have you know light sensitivity. So I started a team viewer session and completed both tasks. I continued with my open box project and read through the DBus section of the Gen2 documentation. I corrected the command syntax I was using in the xinitrc file. It's a .xinitrc. Then when I was able to get it working with Xorg and OpenBox, listener Biku emailed me about this, and I will read that in the feedback section. I set out to try duplicating my XFCE setup. The first attempt was to configure the Tint2 dock, though it wasn't working for me. Then I rewatched some polybar videos. It was going okay until I had issues getting more than one bar to open at one time. After many attempts using the documentation, YouTube videos, and text-based tutorials, I gave up. It was fun reliving my early days in Linux. For now, I am going to put this back on the shelf. I have many other projects I need to resume and some I need to start. And non-computer related activities. There was a new car wash open called Mod Wash a couple minutes away from me. It is quite an interesting experience. They had varying shades of blue lights as you progress through the automated wash bay. I don't know if they changed the uh, color of the lights. I guess I'll find out next time. And I did have next time and another time after that. And apparently it's at the whim of whoever's operating it. So it's going to be a, a new adventure each time. That was good since I had been slacking off on getting my vacuum outside to clean my car. I haven't done that since a year ago. And it's pretty nice if you have a mod wash near you in the, in the States. They've got uh, glass cleaner and uh, chamois and if we call those wipe, you know, cloths, the microfiber, that's the word I was thinking of, wipe, not chamois, but microfiber cloths and uh, vacuums. So that was uh, nice for a slacker. And it was also good timing because I invited a friend and her five-year-old son to dinner and some ice cream. This was a different friend from the one I mentioned previously. I gave her a choice of nearby restaurants, and she chose one of my favorites. I, I tend to uh, frequent the uh, family-owned businesses in the area. Then we drove to a custard stand a few minutes away from my apartment. I used to go there as a child, so it was nice to continue to patronize them as an adult. We all have a great evening, as we haven't seen each other in a couple months. We may make this a common occurrence when I'm home since she has a much more compatible work schedule as she uh, started a new job about a month ago now. So how about you, Eric? Well, I spent a good bit of time this month managing mobile devices. Um, these things seem to come in fits and starts. <laughs> my, my wife tends to keep her phones for a long time. I'd say much longer than most people do. So when it's time to upgrade, it, it's usually a a quantum leap forward. Not only is the, the hardware different and much newer, the version of Android is typically many versions newer as well. And this means that she's learning how not only to use a new phone, the hardware itself, but the version of Android. So it's kind of a double whammy. Uh, it leads to a lot of requests for help from me, which I don't mind, uh, but it does take a lot of time to things get things just right. She's one of those like pixel perfect people, you know, the the icon used to be right here, and now it's over there. So, you know, have to 
get it just right. So um, anyway, she appreciates it and and, uh, and I don't mind doing it. But for this update, I had uh, purchased her a Samsung Galaxy S25 G as a replacement for her very old Samsung Galaxy S7. Uh, and I bought that for her for Christmas. And she had really just sort of moved in and got used to it when, unfortunately, the screen broke. So we looked into what it would take to replace it, and it was going to cost as much to fix the screen as the phone was worth. So we decided to just get a different phone, which meant that process I just described (laughs) I had to do all over again. Samsung makes this fairly easy. They have a smart switch app, which lets you transfer the contents of one phone to another. Uh, You can either do it wirelessly or from a uh, USB-C cable in this case. Uh, It's not perfect because it still requires manual intervention to do things like setting preferences, like ringtones, and, you know, logging into the individual apps. It it installs them all, but it doesn't bring over the uh, credentials and things. So you have to log back in, which, depending on if the person is good about knowing their passwords, that could be relatively painless, or it could be a lot of running around and resetting passwords and things like that. But uh, the good news is it all went really well, and she's very happy with her new phone. So... The other mobile device project was replacing my very, very excruciatingly slow iPad with something more modern. Uh, I tend to get between three and five years, sometimes even more, out of a tablet, um, whether it's an iPad or an Android device. My last attempt at replacing the iPad was a Lenovo IdeaPad Duet Chromebook 10.1-inch 2-in-1 tablet. (laughs) Rolls off the tongue with uh, 4 gigs of RAM and 128 gigs of flash storage. Um, I had high hopes for it because it was a convertible Chromebook uh, instead of Android, but it was just such a dog. It was so slow. The reason that Chrome OS was more interesting was because you can run a virtualized Linux environment and then actually run Linux apps. And so I thought, wow, that would be really amazing to have, you know, I, I know it's Chrome OS, it's not technically Linux, but Still, to have access to all of those apps, I thought was was great, but it was so slow that it really, <laughs> I just couldn't use it. So, and if if I want to do that in the future, I'm just going to have to be aware that it's, it has to be beefier hardware to make that happen. So, anyway, I I wanted to replace the iPad. I don't really love iPad OS. I mean, the advantage that Apple has is that their ecosystem and their store has so many tablet optimized applications, whereas Android, they're there, but there's a lot of stuff that either just isn't available or doesn't scale properly to a larger screen. They've made some some leaps in that in that area. It's a better experience than it had been uh, between Android itself and Samsung's, um, their UI. They've, they've made some, some advancements there. So anyway, I... Uh, also wanted to see that instead of just a tablet, could I use it for light productivity? So something that makes that easier is uh, Samsung's DeX feature, which enables a traditional desktop-like experience. And it has a taskbar, and you can turn the windows into like floating, resizable uh, windows. And so it's very much a desktop. It, it doesn't do everything. And there are some goofy things like the cursor can get a little strange. And I mean, it's, it's certainly not like as refined as a, you know, desktop environment, like a Linux desktop environment, but it's very close and it's certainly much better than just stock Android. So, but I was testing and I was able to do some 
light coding and uh, website development. And I was pretty impressed. I haven't used it a ton yet, but uh, I'm looking forward to seeing just how much I can do with it. Okay, let's move on to updates, where we discuss what we've learned about distros we've already reviewed. Bodhi finally got out of beta and into RC status, so I installed it on my desktop, which again is a ThinkCenter M700 Tiny. It took 24 hours before sudo apt update was actually updating the repos, before which I could not install Firefox or Flatpak from the repo, but the next day I got it done and it's back to normal. Probably a couple of weeks before it goes official, and then they start working on updating 32-bit 6.1 beta to 7.0. This is a busy period for distro updates. EasyOS has been updating every week, and even Linux Mint is ready to release their latest version, 21.2 Victoria, which is late coming out. It's usually here by now. I hope all is well. The beta was released on June 21st. And just today, I learned BlendOS version 3 stable came out. I have not looked at it yet. What about you, Dale? I didn't see much of anything worth mentioning. However, the Debian 12 release announcement is big news, so let's move on to that. I will mention some of the highlights and notable mentions from the announcement. These are taken directly from the release announcement. The link for the full details will be in the show notes. June 10th, 2023, after one year, nine months, and 28 days of development, the Debian project is proud to present its new stable version 12 codename Bookworm. Bookworm will be supported for the next five years thanks to the combined work of the Debian security team and the Debian long-term support team. Following the 2022 general resolution about non-free firmware, we have introduced a new archive area, making it possible to separate non-free firmware from the other non-free packages. It is called non-free-firmware. Most non-free firmware packages have been moved to the non-free dash firmware. This separation makes it possible to build a variety of official installation images. Debian 12 Bookworm ships with several desktop environments such as GNOME 43, KDE Plasma 5.27, LXDE 11, LXQT 1.2.0, MATE 1.26, XFCE 4.18. This release contains over 11,089 new packages for a total count of 64,419 packages, while over 6,296 packages have been removed as obsolete. 43,254 packages were updated in this release. The overall disk usage for Bookworm is about 365 gigabytes and is made up of 1,341,564,204 lines of code. That's quite impressive. Yeah, you could knock that out in a weekend. Yeah, and mostly, I mean, volunteer, you know, some professional programmers, it's crazy. Well, Debian 12 Bookroom includes numerous updates, software packages, over 67% of all packages from the previous release, such as the GNU Compiler Collection version 12.2, LibreOffice 7.4, the Linux Kernel 6.1 series, and LLVM Clang Toolchain 13.01 and 14.0, which is default, 
and they also have 15.06. A total of nine architectures are available and officially supported by Bookworm. 32-bit PC i386 and 64-bit PC AMD 64, 64-bit ARM, ARM 64, ARM EABI, which is ARM EL, ARM V7, EABI, Hard Float ABI, ARM HF, Little Edian, MIPS, which is MIPS SEL, 64-bit Little Edian, MIPS 64EL, 64-bit Little Edian, PowerPC, which is the PPC 64EL, and IBM System Z S396, which is uh, IBM's mainframes. And yes, people, mainframes are still being used in 2023. 32-bit PC i386 no longer covers any i586 processors. The new minimum processor requirement is i686. If your machine is not compatible with this requirement, it is recommended that you stay with Bullseye for the remainder of the support cycle. So let's see what Eric has to say. Well, I really don't have much in the way of updates only because I've just not reviewed many distros yet. <laughs> so uh, there's really nothing for me to, to add in here, but watch this space because in the future, I'll have ample opportunity, hopefully. <laughs> All right, beautiful failures, what we tried and failed to install or run this month. My initial attempt at a review was the LXQT flavor of Debian 12 Bookworm. It didn't get very far. I found myself stuck on a page which had the Debian 12 frame at the top, and the rest of the page was blank white except for the words configuring system. When I rebooted, I tried the Mate ISO. I also had the Plasma ISO, and that worked just fine, albeit with a different installer. We'll talk about that later. I also attempted to install the NVIDIA driver, which failed, and then learned that it wouldn't work on my older card and could not get it to completely uninstall, causing fun init RAMFS errors and making an impossible update. So I installed Mate. Dale? As I mentioned in my foibles, I tried configuring Polydoc or polybar, as some would say. It does both. It was fine when it was the only panel open at the top of the screen. I tried to open a second one at the bottom of the screen. It would open, and the top one would just vanish. I know the syntax in the config.ini file was correct, because individually they would open, you know, at where you are telling it to open on the screen. I watched YouTube videos from... Arco Linux, among others. I duplicated every line, line by line, for each of the videos. Oddly, I had different results each time. Go figure. It ranged from none of them loading to only one either at the top of the screen or the bottom of the screen. I could see why Matt from the LinuxCast YouTube channel said he wasn't going to show how to do that in his tutorial video. It is a very nice panel. I only briefly got into the configuration of the panel. I was trying to duplicate it from my XFC config on my desktop using the uh, default panels that XFC comes with. I can see why many people like Polydoc. Unfortunately, it wasn't working for what I wanted to do. So we move on to Eric. This month I tried adopting a new note-taking app, Notes Nook. It's hard for me to... <laughs> To read that without looking at it and saying Notes Nook, but anyway, it's Notes Nook. 
Uh, we have been using Evernote, my wife and I, since shortly after it was released, somewhere around 2005. So we have about 18 years worth of notes in their system, which makes it a little challenging to migrate to something else. And I'd like to switch because they made it so that if you have more than two devices, you have to pay $130 a year in order to be able to synchronize between more than two devices. So the app has gone through several monetization attempts. So, you know, it started out as a sort of bare bones, very sort of focused note taking app, and then they wanted to make money. So they added a bunch of features so that they could sell it. And that, you know, I may or may not have worked. And then someone else came in and had more ideas. And so what we've ended up with is basically bloated, convoluted mess with a poor performance and a bad UI. <laughs> and I just, I really don't like it. And I've been trying to find something that would be a reasonable replacement. And Notesnook, unfortunately, didn't fit the bill. One of the major issues was trying to get all of that data out and import it into Notesnook. And it doesn't support the way that it was handling the, the notebooks and tagging. It just wasn't bringing it in properly. And I tried several times and I, I got it to be good enough and then it wouldn't sync. <laughs> so I spent a couple hours on it and I thought, okay, well, I guess this is a bad sign. If it's this hard to work with, then forget it. But it's something that I keep an eye on. I, I note taking apps in general interest me as a, as a sort of a genre of apps. So uh, I hopefully will see one soon that can be a replacement for uh, for Evernote. And if anyone listening has a good replacement for Evernote, please let me know. Yeah, I, I, I left Evernote back when they tried to monetize me and that I haven't found anything the same, but I found things I can get used to. But when you've got 18 years of data to, to hang on to, that's a, that's a problem. Yeah. And you know, not all of it is like crucial, but there's a lot of stuff in there that's actually interesting to go back and you know, look at as, you know, we've gone through life and anyway, so yeah, it is difficult to move. And I feel like the, the more time goes on, the, the worse it is. So the uh, thing with me, I've been looking myself, I'm using standard notes. It's the, uh, the free tier and I'm almost ready to do the premium, but a friend was uh, trying out Joplin and, um, there's another one that that's the name is Obsidian, hmm, okay, which is a little bit more bare bones, where you have to build it up in order for it to be useful. Where you actually make templates using the Markdown and then use those templates to do your notes instead of something like oh, standard notes has uh, when you pay for the premium has the Markdown built in, and it's basically a drop down function. You just turn it on, or if you want to have check things you just turn it on oh neat okay like tasks or yeah yeah gotcha yeah. to do's yeah i actually do use joplin because it does allow you to import evernote data but the mobile client is very underwhelming and my wife doesn't know markdown and she's not going to learn markdown <laughs> so it's not really a viable replacement yeah i'm due to it too yeah yeah so okay well let's move on to the reviews and let's start out with dale Well, it's probably no surprise to anyone that knows me or has listened to this podcast for the past, what, three years or so, that I'm reviewing Debian 12, Bookworm. And uh, this time around, I'm going to do Cinnamon because I haven't uh, used Cinnamon in a while. 
This has been a release of Debian that is long, long overdue, in my opinion. It is quite fitting that they released it during their 30th anniversary. The inclusion of the non-free firmware and fairly current versions of the popular desktop environments makes this a worthy of uh, much attention. A nice bonus is the 6.1 kernel, which includes many updates for the recent generations of Intel and AMD CPUs. And my hardware. Well, I used my Inspiron again. So it's my uh, Dell Inspiron 13-7353. It has a Intel dual-core i5-6200U 2.8 GHz CPU. 13-inch display using Intel HD Graphics 520. 8 gigabytes of RAM and 128 gigabyte Samsung CM871 SSD. For the installation ease and issues, well, let's start off with a rant, shall we? I was quite disappointed with the redesigned download page. I think making the net install ISO the default choice was a bad choice, with some caveats. What is their target audience? When it comes to more advanced, experienced users, the net ISO is a good choice. It is my default choice with the 4GB DVD ISO being my second choice for offline installations. I can see why Debian chose the net install. It only downloads the files that are required based on installation selections. That is less of a demand on their bandwidth and servers. The net install ISO uses the same Debian installer as the DVD ISO. I wouldn't say it is a good choice for new users of previous distros of Linux or new to Linux. The live ISOs use the Calamaris installer, which is a slightly smaller than the DVD ISO at around 3 gigabytes. These are the ISOs that should have been featured in the download link. Listing them by the desktop environment is no different than other distros' download listings. This is where Debian's philosophy interferes with the practicality. In my opinion, if you are creating ISOs of live sessions, then promote them. They are more labor-intensive than maintaining the DVD and net install ISOs. That is enough of my rant and the editorial on my, my rant here. I just wish the people that wrote the press release were the ones that redesigned the website because they purposely mentioned the Calamaris-based installers. Yeah, let me butt in here. Uh, my problem with Debian is I went to look for the downloads and they gave me a page that told me 17 different ways I could do the download. Exactly. And when I finally found the page that had the live ISOs and I downloaded three of them, I did try out the LXQT ISO, and it did not use the Calamaris installer, which it should have. Uh, it was still using the net installer. I don't know why. Yeah, that threw me off. Yeah. And not, not like you need uh, another you know person chiming in on having difficulty, but I, I, <laughs> I think that has been my one consistent frustration is that their website is unfathomable trying to find something on there, so... They want to make everyone have their own favorite way of installing the thing, and here's how you do it, and you have to find where that is. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> yeah. Okay, back to tail. <laughs> That's why I honestly think the people that do the press releases have nothing to do with the website. They just say, here, put this in the content management system. i got to go home. So, yep, 
least I'm not alone. I am not going to go through the walkthrough of the installation, because it really hasn't changed that much if you've ever done it. But if you are interested, you can listen to episode 21 from April of 2021. Episode 21 is a review of Debian SID, in which I explained the Debian installer, and it's in quite detail because I believe in that episode I upgraded Debian Stable to Debian SID, the uh, testing branch, or the development branch, I should say, because there is a testing branch. As with previous versions of Debian, if you don't enter a password for the root user, sudo will automatically be enabled. If you enter a password for the root user, you will need to use su or enter the root password when prompted in the uh, GUI to perform activities requiring root access. One issue I had with the Wi-Fi, on the first boot of the uh, installation ISO, the Wi-Fi was not detected. I also want to point out that I chose my Dell because it has always had Wi-Fi issues with Debian Stable. Not Ubuntu, not the various uh, Arch spins, but just Debian for some reason. The exception is Debian 12, however. I rebooted after the first installation attempt. After that reboot, the installation detected the Wi-Fi. Post-installation hardware facts and issues. Since the installation, the Wi-Fi has functioned as it should. The default wallpaper is a bluish-green with random triangle shapes and a white Debian swirl logo in the center. There are many others to pick from. The theme has a gray panel with the windows having more of a color similar to newly cured concrete. That's the best way I could describe it. The accent colors are more on the darker side compared to the green used in Linux Mint Cinnamon. I went to check for updates using apt in the terminal and noticed that the CD-ROM repo listing in the app sources list still exists. I haven't used this option in over 20 years. I am not sure how many people use it. To disable it, I opened Software and Updates GUI Utility and unchecked it in the Other Software tab. Optionally, I could have edited the slash etc slash apt slash sources dot list file and placed a pound symbol, or as some of the younger generation would call the hashtag, in front of the CD-ROM line. When using the GUI utility, it will prompt you for the root password or your password if you have sudo configured. This only happens if you're using the DVD ISO. I saw that they have the Semantic Package Manager and the GNOME Software version 43.4 installed, along with GDB for installing the .deb files um, packages. Since GNOME Software was installed, I installed the GNOME Dash software dash plugin dash flatpak to enable flatpak support. Installing flatpak was the usual and adding flathub as a repository source. Snap is also not installed by default but is available. Another slight disappointment was Firefox ESR, the extended support release 102.12, which is the whole thing about. Gnome 4.3, but it's Gnome 43, but I digress. No, actually, it's Gnome 3.43. They dropped the 3. They didn't go to version oh, that's 4. Right. They just dropped the 3. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, semantics. You got to love them. I understand their reasoning for it, but like I said, I, I digress. 
It is nice that it is the updated version of the ESR. I just find it's odd that the current version of Firefox has been available in SID, the uh, unstable branch, of Debian for quite a while. I used to enable that package with the app pinning before the uh, Firefox Flatpak was available. I never had the issues with the uh, Firefox ESR, though. I've heard of people having compatibility issues. I just don't see the point of using ESR if Firefox is in SID. It can't be too much more against the DFSG to allow Firefox in SID. DSFG is Debian Free Software Guidelines. They are the uh, group that decides what's in the official uh, Debian repositories. This brings up another omission in the app sources.list file. The contrib and non-free repositories are not enabled by default because they don't comply with the DFSG. They can be easily enabled by using the software and updates GUI utility or adding contrib and the non-free to the slash etc slash apt slash sources dot list file after the main entry on that on that line. The packages in Contrib require other packages that are now available in the main Debian repo because reasons. The packages in the non-free are, as the name implies, not licensed free software. These are repos that other Debian slash Ubuntu based distros have enabled by default. Ubuntu has a similar repos called Universe, which is the community maintained, and Multiverse, which is the uh, copyright and or license encumbered uh, packages. There are quite a few other packages installed by default. I will name a few as there are a lot. You have Gnome Disk at version 43. You have Shotwell version.30.17. And I'm going to lean on Moss to pronounce that. I just say sell. That's, that's what I was going to say. <laughs> All right. A photo management uh, application. Pigeon version 2.14.12-1. It's a, a multi-protocol instant messenger client. Um, uses a lot of the XMPP, I think, is the uh, the protocol that it supports. Thunderbird version 102.12, an email client. LibreOffice 7.4.5.1. And Totem, also known as Gnome Video, is also from Gnome 43 at uh, 43.0-2. And the Cinnamon desktop is version 5.6, which I think is fairly close to what Mint is using, if I'm not mistaken. I didn't put that in the notes here. One other thing I noticed that isn't available is the extra utilities and customizations that Linux Mint adds to Cinnamon. Though the spices, also known as the applets, are available, you don't really notice the amount of work the Linux Mint team does until you use Cinnamon on another distro, so I really commend them for their dedication, for uh, all their hard work. And Clem, you are an amazing worker. I second that. There is no other cinnamon experience like Mint, <laughs> that's for sure. Yes, he's so dedicated, it's impressive. I saw that Pipewire and Pipewire-Pulse are installed and configured by default. And I also I forgot to put in here, Wire Plumber is also enabled. Xorg is being used since Cinnamon hasn't moved to Wayland yet. Wayland is used for Plasma and uh, GNOME on Debian 12. 
They have LightDM configured to require entering both the username and the password to log in. Ease of use. It was nice to revisit the Cinnamon desktop. I haven't used it since 2018 when I used Linux Mint Cinnamon as my daily driver. It is a very usable desktop. There are enough customizations to allow some personalization, though not too much to make it overwhelming like XFCE or Plasma. I can easily adapt to a workflow that is not my preference. One thing I noticed even when I was using GNOME on Debian 11 Bullseye is that when you use the GNOME Software Center to install updates, it will download the updates, then ask you to reboot. During the reboot, it installs the updates, which then reboots the computer once more. That is very Windows-like, and I don't see the point of doing that, especially when there's life patch. Yeah, I have noticed that in a number of uh, distros that I've reviewed. It seems really strange when you have to do the download, and then it you have to reboot, and then it installs them, and you have to uh, it reboots automatically, and then you go in and remember. Uh, I don't know why they do that. I'm sure there's a good reason. Yeah, because I think it's either SUSE or Red Hat has Live Patch, and granted, that's a lot in the server space, but it's the same packages. <laughs> it's I, like I said, I, I'm sure there's a reason. I can use app in the terminal to install the same updates without being required to reboot the computer. And I mean, this is Debian. I mean, you can go six months, update a Debian box, and I can guarantee you one of my paychecks, it's not going to break. <laughs> I bet you you could get Jesse and update it to 12 and it wouldn't break. You know, so anyways, Jesse was version 8. There isn't an update notification installed by default. Oddly, as soon as I opened the GNOME Software Center, it showed it had updates available. To enable update notifications, I installed the package called package-update-indicator. Upon reboot, there will be an icon in your tray. The preferences allow checking for updates every 8 hours, twice a day, daily, weekly, and never, which I thought was kind of humorous since why would you install it? <laughs> So, some things just humor me. You get tired of it, so you want to say, no, no <laughs> yeah. more. That's enough. Yeah, that's some things, like I said, some things just crack me up. I don't know why this isn't installed by default, but reasons. Memory and disk use. This was shocking. Well, not this part. This is actually not bad, but the memory was shocking. Yeah, spoiler alert. 7.4 gigabytes of space used on the SSD. What's this? All right. 1.2 gigabytes of memory used, uh, reported by Free-HM, to uh, quote the doc, whatever his name was, from Back to the Future. 1.21 gigawatts? Yeah, that that's an incredible amount, especially we'll get around to Mate later, and it just doesn't use that much. And I didn't have any spices loaded. <laughs> <laughs> this was a vanilla desktop. I mean, other than you know, loading Telegram and... And other things, but what Telegram? What uses what or half a gig of memory? Maybe three hundred megs. And I loaded that in. Well, you read the memory uh, before you've loaded Telegram, but still. I know, but I'm this. I'm this saying, if you had a GNOME desktop at eight hundred, nine hundred megabytes, you could still have Discord and Telegram loaded, and you're still not at one point two gigabytes. So what is Cinema doing? I mean, what? How is not Cinema doing? But how is the Debian people configuring this? It's crazy. Ease of finding help. I didn't seek any help. 
There's no shortage of places to seek help. The Debian forums and the Linux questions forums are some uh, good good options. Nice call out to LQ. I love LQ. Oh, yeah, they're really good. I started using them a lot more when uh, Ubuntu stopped really updating their knowledge bases because you could still find stuff from Ubuntu 12. I think I joined LQ in 2008. Wow, that's quite a while. Okay, well, we're going to go on to Plays Nice with Others, which is the whole point of distro hopping. I dual booted with Partis Linux, which is still based on Debian Bullseye version 11. I have found Debian to be fairly compatible with other Debian-based and Ubuntu-based distros, though you will have some problems if you do it reverse because Ubuntu is um, walking away from uh, OS Prober for reasons. Stability. Debian wrote the book on stability. The fact that you can go months between updates without breaking the system is quite impressive. Upgrading from each version and even the testing branch of the development branch called SID, in my experience, completed without an issue. The only times I've heard of Debian breaking is when packages require the initramfs to be regenerated. A good example would be the NVIDIA binary drivers, which is the bane of existence for Linux users for, what, 10, 15 years now? (laughs) Oh, yeah. And they still haven't figured it out. They're even more fun when it's hybrid graphics. Oh, yeah. What's really fun is Debian 12 pretty much requires, if you have an old NVIDIA card, to use the Nouveau driver because their driver starts at the 570. Yeah, I think if you have something older than Kepler, you're going to have to use NVIDIA because I think you can still get 470, I think it is, or 495. I can't remember which. But yeah, anything older than that, you're using Nouveau. So similar distros to check out. Spiral Linux Cinnamon to Debian base. Linux Mint Cinnamon, Ubuntu base. And Ubuntu Cinnamon, which is a new uh, new spin of theirs. Fedora Cinnamon, and an Endeavor OS Cinnamon, which is an Arch base. And Ubuntu Cinnamon is now official as of uh, 22.10. Oh, really? Okay, I didn't think they were official yet. Oh, that's cool. So we're going to move on to my ratings. This may be a little bit of a caveat. Ease of installation, new user, 5 out of 10. Experienced user, 10 out of 10. Let's just say the Debian installer is stuck in the 90s. It makes sense to me. I could do it blindfolded with uh, both hands tied behind my back. But one of the things I like about this podcast, you get to learn other people's uh, take on things, especially like Moss's input and uh, Eric's input and Joss, our previous co-host, that not everything is easy to everyone. So, yeah, I went in the middle of the road at five. It could be as low as one. So hardware issues... Well, it's 9 out of 10. It's a very recent kernel. You shouldn't have any uh, any problems. Ease of finding help for the community and web. I didn't rate it, but you can find help. Ease of use. 8 out of 10. I took some points off just because of the notification wasn't installed and just some of the other niggly bits that I previously mentioned with, uh, with uh, having to install things that should have been there by default. Plays nice with others. 10 out of 10. I think out of my experience, I've had the best experience dual booting with Debian. So, uh, stability, like I said, Debian wrote the book on stability. 10 out of 10. Overall rating, 8 out of 10. So my final comments. 
Despite my disappointments, this has been a great update to Debian. Debian is not targeting the new user or those familiar with Linux. I think after 30 years, Debian knows their place in the Linux community. With that said, I believe if this was installed for a new user with the following changes of installing the update notification service, Flatpak and its integration with GNOME software, and configuring LightDM to remember the username, this would be a good user experience for a new user. Cinnamon has had a very familiar desktop workflow similar to Windows. Even the updates requiring reboots will not be questioned, even though not necessary. Many will still complain about having old, sometimes called outdated packages. Whenever I have questioned someone about their desire for the most up-to-date software, most can't tell what has changed in the new version. They can only say, well, it's the newest. Kind of reminds me of the Spinal Tap. This one's better because it goes to 11. If you are looking for a distro that doesn't change and is mostly static with consistent security and bug fixes, then Debian Stable of Cinnamon should be at the top of your list. Now let's move on to Moss. Thanks, Dale. Well, it's kind of unusual because we're almost reviewing the same distro this month. I'm doing Debian 12 Bookworm Mate. Intro, this is almost the oldest existing distro. I've had my issues with Debian in the past, but they made a few sane changes before releasing this version, and I thought I'd give it a go. My hardware, I used my Lenovo ThinkPad T540P as usual. This computer has a fourth generation Intel Core i7, 4710MQ, 16 gigs of RAM, a 512GB Silicon Power SSD with both Intel HD Graphics 4600 and NVIDIA GeForce GT730M graphics. I installed it using the entire disk. Installation ease and issues. The biggest problem I had installing this distro was finding where and how to install it. They have so many options for installing, downloading, torrenting, etc. that it took me 10 minutes to find the download ISO for the live versions. I installed then using my Ventoy stick. I keep trying that to see when it works and when it doesn't. My first attempt was the LXQT desktop version. It did not complete the install. I then attempted to install the Mate version, and Calamaris came up and everything went smooth as silk. Uh, I may need to revisit the LXQT install, and I should also spend time with Plasma, which I also downloaded the live ISO of, but not this month. That could have been a Ventoy issue and not an issue with LXQT, but I haven't used Ventoy in a few years. I think it's an issue with the net installer itself, whereas it didn't have an issue with Calamaris. At any rate, uh, Debian 12 Mate does use the Calamaris installer, and there are rarely any difficulties using this fine installer, even for newbies. Post-installation hardware facts and issues. After installation, I ran updates, then I installed Flatpak, went to Flathub on my browser, and got the installation files for Firefox, Audacity, Discord, Telegram, and Pysol FC. I opened Synaptic and removed LibreOffice and Firefox ESR. I installed my Flatpaks, tracked down FreeOffice, installed GW, and installed FreeOffice. Why is GW not installed? I don't know. I mean, it's a Debian app. I used apt to install MS Core fonts, Kmines, Kmahjong, and NetHack X11. I then signed into my accounts at Firefox, Telegram, and Discord. 
I moved the upper taskbar to the bottom and consolidated the two bars, and voila, I have a functioning Debian system. Note, Flatpak install files downloaded from FlatHub do not automatically install, i.e. clicking on them in the file manager, kaha, only results in the scripts being opened in a text editor. To get around this, I had to know to open terminal, CD downloads, and type Flatpak install installation file name. It worked fine from there. I've seen some of the newer distros, you can just double-click the file, and others you can't. I think you had an issue like that with another one. Did I? Yeah, I well, the last uh, Debian-based thing I reviewed, I noticed that it worked to double-click the file. Hmm. And it didn't work to do to type Flatpak install in the terminal. So, <laughs> and they were both Debian-based, so I don't know. Anyhow, after watching Chris Barnett uh, show off Debian 12 GNOME, I learned that apparently the NVIDIA driver is available, or at least an NVIDIA driver is available, and I installed it. There was only one driver listed without a number. My machine told me my card was not supported by that driver, but I installed it anyhow because it was the only option. I looked for a search function and learned that there is not one in Debian 12 Mate. I later did find it buried in the menus. Uh, but I found NVIDIA X server settings under System Administration. It appears that it installed the 575 driver, whereas my card is only good for up to the 470. As I don't run games on this machine, I may never learn whether I have a problem. Other friends told me that my card is not supported by the new driver, so I attempted to remove it and rebooted, hopefully to get the Nouveau driver running again. And I'm going to cover more of that further down. Ease of use. One feature in Debian that I haven't seen as well implemented anywhere else is task cell. If you want to use a different desktop environment, you open a terminal and type sudo task cell, arrow down to what you want to add, tab to the OK button, and hit enter. I added Plasma 5.27 to my system in only the time it took to install the packages. Is this a new thing just in Debian, or is it something that's been available and I just missed it? I don't know. However, after going through all that, it stuck at 99% on the bar and then reported apt-get failed, and upon logging out and back in, I do not have Plasma. Also, following this attempt, I started getting errors, and you'll have to see the show notes for the error message because it's a long baby. And finally, after getting zero help from the Debian forum, I just reinstalled. Started over. No issues. I learned what I learned, and not everyone will want to do a second installation. I'm hoping that not everyone who tries to install Debian will have to do three installations to get it to work. I went through and added all my apps again. I've now been using it for over a week since that install. There's no updater installed in the Mate version. You either know how to use Terminal or use Synaptic. And as a result of that, the only place I could find to check repo selections was in Synaptic. Dale and I talked about this a bit one night uh, to see if the CD-ROM was enabled. It wasn't, but I had to go to Synaptic to find out. I don't know if that's an oversight, if they're going to correct it soon, or if it's just something they decided to do without. I think they do that as a legacy with the DVD ISO because you can use it, but only for the main repository, since that's officially supported. Now we get to memory and disk use. When I got all of this stuff installed, and yes, I do have extras and Flatpak does take up space, I had 10.9 gigabytes of space used on the SSD. But my memory of a fresh boot was 938 megabytes, which is less than Dale had, but a bit high for Mate. There are 16 gigabytes on the system, so I don't have to worry about running out anytime, but that is a bit high for Mate. 
Ease of finding help. Most help is through IRC, although they do have a pretty robust forum as well. But no matter what, you should be able to find some help. I say should, because although I tried, I didn't get much when I asked. Plays nice with others. Not tested, but it should be fine with other Debian-based distros, of which there are many. Stability. Uh, Debian is probably the most stable distro in the world. There may be a bug or two to be squashed, but expect it to be found and squashed quickly. Similar distros to check out. I've got Ubuntu Mate, Mint Mate, Zorin OS, Makulu Shift. I'm sure there are dozens of others. So for my ratings, I got ease of installation for a new user is 9 out of 10, experienced user 10 out of 10. That's if you download a live ISO that uses Calamaras, a new user will have no problem. Hardware issues, 8 out of 10. Ease of finding help, 8 out of 10. Ease of use, 8 out of 10. Plays nice with others, 9 out of 10. Stability, 10 out of 10. And my overall rating, I've got an 8.5 written down here, probably closer to 8. Final comments. While it took me some effort to get here, I believe this is the first time I've been truly comfortable with actual Debian. Some other Debian-based distros have felt pretty good to me, but even they were not this good. I do wish there were an E25 version, or better, Moksha. Most of my down ratings were due to things that should have been covered but were not, such as the NVIDIA driver. Even so, the T540P is the only machine in the house with an NVIDIA card, and I don't put it to use often. With the addition of easy flat pack use and the non-free libraries, I believe this is almost ready for new users. I will check back when Linux Mint Debian Edition gets an upgrade. Adding the Mint tools to this would make it a killer distro. Let's move on to Eric. This month I took a look at Linux Mint 21.1 Cinnamon. Not Debian? Come on now. <laughs> Not Debian. I mean... <laughs> Sort of, kind of, way down the line. <laughs> Watered down Debian, I guess. So I normally will go and look for something specific to test because it's interesting to me and I haven't used it. But truth be told, Linux Mint is something that I've been using since their very early days. I think it. I started with version 2.2 Bianca back in uh, early 2007. And the promise then was that it was a more complete out-of-the-box experience then that was provided by Ubuntu, including browser plugins, media codecs, support for DVD playback, Java, and other components that just made it much easier to get sort of hit the ground running, so to speak. And it's still the case today. However, I'd say that they've also become known for providing one of the easiest and most complete Linux desktop experiences available. I would say that I'm biased there, but I think that's the opinion of many people that I've talked to. The installation process, along with the post-installation welcome screen, make it very easy to configure important aspects of any new installation using a step-by-step -step approach. These include the theme and color scheme, system snapshots, driver manager, update manager, system settings, and software manager. It may not be necessary to install a driver or new software right away, but now the user at least has been made aware that the tools exist. And because of this guided approach, Linux Mint has earned a reputation as being particularly well-suited for new users. While that's quite an achievement, some equate beginner-friendly with being less ideal for more experienced users, developers, system administrators, and so on. In my experience, Linux Mint provides a very stable base for any kind of computing tasks, from basic duties like web browsing and entertainment, to productivity tasks using office applications and development and administrative tasks as well. I haven't always consistently used Linux Mint over the years, 
but there's almost always an installation of it somewhere on one of my systems. I decided to use it most recently after having used KDE Plasma and realizing it just wasn't for me. The developers have made great strides in the past few years and I have high hopes for Plasma 6, but there are still too many rough edges for me. The Cinnamon desktop environment sits comfortably between the minutiae of KDE Plasma and the simplicity of GNOME, providing just enough configurability while not being overly complicated. There are many basic quality of life aspects that make using a computer more straightforward for me. My hardware. I'm using my main system, a Dell XPS 15 9570 laptop, which has an 8th generation Coffee Lake Intel i7-8750H 6-core 12-thread at 4.1 gigahertz. I recently upgraded to 32 gigs of DDR4-2666 RAM. I have a Toshiba 256 NVMe as the boot drive and a crucial 1TB SSD drive as my data drive. It has hybrid NVIDIA graphics, which is a GeForce GTX 1050 Ti Mobile, and Intel Coffee Lake HGT2 UHD Graphics 630. Installation ease and issues. Given that Mint is praised for being beginner-friendly, I do think that it's a miss that when booting into a live session, it just loads to the default desktop session. The only indication of what to do next is a desktop icon entitled Install Linux Mint. I assume most people figure out what they should do, as in double-clicking the icon, but it would be a nice touch if there was at least some sort of note that nudged the user in that direction. Mint uses the venerable Ubiquity installer, which, after being the default for Ubuntu since 6.06 Dapper Drake, seems to be on its way out. Ubuntu 23.04 uses a new installer written in Flutter and leverages Subiquity, Canonical's CLI installer for Ubuntu Server, and Curtain Technologies. The version included in 23.04 does almost everything the old one did while offering a more modern aesthetic, an improved partition manager, and a new slideshow while installing. I assume at some point we'll probably see that in Mint. Honestly, it's a little difficult for me to be completely objective when evaluating the installation process simply because I've been through it literally hundreds of times, maybe thousands by now, <laughs> I honestly am not sure. It's so familiar that I, I find it trivial to complete. Right there with you. You know, <laughs> it's like, you don't even think about it. You just, you know, and especially if you're familiar with the hardware, I mean, it's just so easy. Uh, I would like to believe that it's as easy for someone less familiar, but I can't be sure. Post-installation hardware facts and issues. I didn't have any hardware issues, nor did I need to manually install any drivers. This laptop has NVIDIA hybrid graphics, which can sometimes be a challenge. However, Mint was able to install the proper driver automatically. I seem to remember in the past needing to use the driver manager to select the correct option, but I believe this was true on Ubuntu as well. So it probably is something that they fixed upstream and Mint has inherited by default. Ease of use. Linux Mint tends to be one of the easiest distros to set up and maintain. If you follow the steps on the welcome screen, there's not much else for you to do from an administrative standpoint. That's a bit of an oversimplification, but not by much. It offers one of the few truly usable software centers of any distribution or desktop environment. Many of them do a decent job of handling native packages and sometimes third-party universal options like Flatpak and Snap, but I often find them to be slow and buggy and generally prefer to use the command line. I still occasionally use the apt and Flatpak command, but I honestly don't mind using the Mint Software Center. It makes me feel confident recommending Mint to a beginner who is likely only ever going to use the software center. I suppose one thing I can suggest is an improvement 
is to allow for filtering between native packages and flat packs like the GNOME Software Center does. Otherwise, the Update Manager is easy to use. I haven't personally seen it break anything. Backups work well, particularly with ButterFS by way of snapshots, and things are typically very stable and predictable. Memory and disk use. I did something a little different this time. I did a while true, do free dash HM, sleep 10, and then done. And the reason I did that is because if you watch that over a period of a few minutes, the system sort of will grab a little extra memory and then sort of settle down a little. So at the end of it, once it sort of settled down, I was at 685 megabytes used. And so it's interesting that Dale on Debian was seeing 1.2 gigs and on Mint, which is also using Cinnamon, and I would argue more software by default in the background, maybe not, but it's using 685, which is almost <laughs> almost half. Well, it can be stated also that the Ubuntu that Mint is based on is still based on Debian 11. That might make a difference. Possibly, yeah. Another thing we could probably do if, if interested after... In the, in the coming you know days after the recording, we could do comparisons of doing uh, screenshots of uh, PS AUX yeah, sure. and comparing because I'm wondering because when I did it was looking, I saw quite a bit of uh, things running that I don't really remember in previous versions. So I'm thinking there's a lot more on 12 that's running by default than there was in 11. Got it. Yeah, that could certainly be the case. Uh, let's see. I used df-h to show that a base installation used 11 gigabytes of disk space, which seems to be a kind of an average, uh, it seems like, from the last few shows that, you know, 10 to 12, 13, somewhere in there. So anyway, ease of finding help. Linux Mint is a long-lived distro, which has a massive community. There are quite a few ways of finding help or otherwise getting in touch. These include the community forums, a community portal website, GitHub, Facebook, Twitter, IRC chat, Reddit, Discord, and they have some local communities as well in, in different countries. They also have an excellent documentation hub, which, for example, includes an installation guide available in 24 different languages and a variety of file formats. <laughs> and they also have an unofficial podcast. Ah, that's true. Mintcast every week. <laughs> that's a must listen. I love that show. Plays nice with others. As mentioned above in the installation section... Oh, haha. I actually had done a much longer review of the installation process, but as with Dale, I just sort of thought, you know, I think probably most people have used Ubiquity at this point, so rather than <laughs> go through it again step by step. But what I had mentioned was that it changes depending on whether it finds another Linux distribution installed. If it does, then it asks if you want to install alongside it or replace it or something else. And so it, as far as playing nicely with others, the answer is yes, it definitely does. That something else has always bothered me. There should be something better than something else, and then you go to another screen to decide what else you're doing. <laughs> A non-specific something else. Stability. Linux Mint is based on an LTS version of Ubuntu. Their update manager is solid and incorporates snapshot capability, particularly when used in conjunction with ButterFS. I've not personally encountered any stability issues in my many years of using Mint that weren't of my own doing by making a mistake. Similar distros to check out. I thought of Zorn OS right away because they're another one that uh, provides a very sort of 
tailored experience and have a, a very good ex a support experience. And also MX Linux, which is not Cinnamon or Mate. There you have XFCE or KDE, but they also have a very interesting installer and a great community as well. So I think those are both good options. Ubuntu Cinnamon might be added in there. And uh, I will point out that Zorin and uh, Farron and a few other distros actually have good theming to set it up to look like and run like however you're preferring to have it. Good point. Yes. So as far as ratings, I'm going to say ease of installation for a new user. I'm going to say eight out of 10 because I still think there that section where you are picking partitions, choosing whether you're erasing the whole disk. Uh, you know, I still think there's a too many ways that someone could make a mistake there. So I'm going to take a few points off. Ubiquity is not Calamaris. Yeah, that is absolutely <laughs> true. No doubt. And and another thing, I think a lot of it too, we talk about the place nice with others is it's kind of unfair to Linux because you pull a hundred Windows users and ask them how their installations of Windows went. And they're going to look at you like, huh, <laughs> I, I just took it out of the box. Turn it on. Right. You mean the setup <laughs> process where I have to put in my name and yeah. Ease of installation experience user is 10 out of 10. Hardware issues, 10 out of 10. Ease of finding help, community and web, 10 out of 10. Ease of use, 10 out of 10. Plays nicely with others, 10 out of 10. Stability, 10 out of 10 for an overall rating of 9.5 out of 10. Final comments. Desktop Linux is an ever-changing landscape of distributions and desktop environments. Some are short-lived and get absorbed by other projects or just fail outright. Others are proof of a concept and aren't intended to really be long-term. Linux Mint is one of those distributions that has withstood the test of time and has evolved into something of an institution. I like that it offers something for everyone. I appreciate that it has a large, dedicated community and is seemingly well-funded. The fact that they share their donation information as part of their monthly blog posts is fascinating to me. For example, they made $10,282 in donations in June of 2023. It's encouraging to know that people are supporting the project with their time and their money so that it remains healthy and vibrant. It bodes well for the future, and I certainly hope that it carries on for many, many years to come. I can't be sure that I will continue to use it as my daily driver, but I can be reasonably sure that it will always be one of my favorites and that I will continue to recommend it to others. Let's move on to new releases. Okay, new releases this month from June 2nd to July 5th. SNAL 1.27, Arch 2023.06.01. GhostBSD 23.06.01, OSMC 2023.06-1, OpenSUSE 15.5, ArchLabs 2023.06.07, Artex 20230605, Aldermarine 38, KDE Neon, uh, ZevNet 5.13.4, BROS 22.04.2, Debian 12, Debian Edu 12.0.0, Hunix 16.1.1.5, Playmo 8.0, 4M Linux 43.0, Voyager 12, IP Fire 2.27-Core 175, Rizzy OS 38, Crunch Bang Plus Plus 12.0, BROS again, I missed that one, 23.04.1, Regatta 23.0.10, Alpine 3.18.2, Sparky Linux 
Leah 7.1, Playmo 8.1, Syslinux OS 12, Pure OS 10.3, Clear 39400, Univention 5.0-4, Proxmox 8.0 VE, Athena 2023.06.23, Nobara 38, Bodhi 7.0.0 RC, favoritism on my part, Open Mamba 2023.0626, Absolute 2023.0625, Nutix 23.06.1, Proxmox 3.0 Backup Server, Live Razo 14.23.06.28, SmartOS 2023.0629, KDE Neon 2023.0629, Arco Linux 23.07.01, Makulu Linux 2023-06-30, EasyOS 5.4.5, Gparted 1.5.0-3, Peppermint 2023-07-01, KOS 2023.06, Arch 2023.07.01, FatDog 64814, Tuxedo OS 2-20230704, Archman 20230705, Archcraft 2023.07.05, Blue Star 6.4.1 and MAID 4.1. Now we move on to feedback. Londoner via our Telegram channel wrote at Dales underscore CDL ABIF, which stands for Arch Base Installation Framework is a generic offline installer for Arch-based ISOs. This was in regards to me not knowing what the abbreviation of ABIF in my review of Archcraft in episode 43 meant. Andrew Bennett via our Telegram channel wrote, Ep 43, Arch's grub is cut from the next version in progress and has features, functionality, not yet present in static versions of other distros use. Thus, if you have an Arch-based distro, its grub has to be controlling grub to do the OS probe for other non-Arch versions. If you recall the August 2022 grub issue Arch and Arch-based distros have, that was a pivot point due to the functionality change in the grub code. And a link to the show notes there, and that answers some of the questions I've had on Arch distros. Yes, I, I forgot about how they were using Grub Next instead of Grub Stable, which they have reasons. An email f- to uh, me from Biku. Hi there, Miraculous Dale. Thank you for that. I You should see me on a daily basis. I'm not always that miraculous. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent review as always. Detailed, informative, and thoughtful. You mentioned your issues with Void Linux. Have you tried these things? And uh, I'm not going to read through all of that, but it's doing symbolic links to how uh, Void enables services. They use symbolic links. You'd have to see the documentation to understand it. Make sure that the package xinit is installed and create a file called .xinitrc with a capital X and your $home directory and give it permissions to execute. $home is one of the built-in things in Bash where you can use that and it will automatically use your home directory 
of the person that signed in. You can add a bunch of these things to this file, but for starting OpenBox session, make sure you have the following in your .xinitrc file. And I did. It's uh, short enough to read. It's exec space openbox hyphen session. Reboot with hope in your heart. If this doesn't work, then you can try this workaround to uh, disable the ACP ID, which you just have to remove the ACP ID directory to remove the uh, symlink. Install the eLoginD, dbus eLoginD, dbus dbus hyphen eLog. These are even harder to type, too. <laughs> yeah. Install eLoginD, dbus eLoginD, dbus dash eLoginD dash libs, and dbus dash eLoginD dash x11 packages. Next, enable eLoginD service, and you can take over. Yeah. And those are actually the login D from system D. Since a lot of the people in the void community are anti system D, they went to the source and recompiled it so that it doesn't depend on any system D service. So anyways, they have a symbolic link for the var service directory for eLoginD. Reboot with fingers crossed. I'll end with a distro suggestion. It is not new neither. It's shiny, but it's stable and has some nifty GUI configuration tools up its sleeve. It's Magia, and Magia 9 Beta-2 was recently announced, so it's a perfect time to give it a spin. And I have the uh, links to the announcement and the download link that Biko uh, provided in the show notes. And he closes, by now, and keep distro hopping. I really love the with hope in your heart. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I love that. That's very, uh, very good prose. And he signs Biku. This email had several replies, so I will read my first reply to his message and the reply stating that the issue was resolved. And believe you me that that was a very long comment thread that we had in the email, or reply thread rather. I didn't use ACP ID because of the issues of running it with Elong in D because reasons. I saw there is a way to disable Elong in D ACPI detection. I opted to use Elong in D because it can function as a replacement for ACPID. I looked through your list of packages for Dbus. I noticed that I didn't install Dbus Elong in D X11. Hmm, that could have been the issue. Since I already used the XFCE ISO for my desktop, I wiped what I had configured in the base ISO. I needed my desktop in a usable state, so I went with that was already functioning. I installed the void base ISO on my ThinkPad 460 to test this omission of the dbus-elogind-x11 package. I will see how if this was indeed the issue. I will let you know what happens. I haven't looked at Magia. It appears to be a fork of Mandriva Linux with its origins in Mandrake. I can add it to my list. And I added in that I've looked at Magia rather frequently and revisited every couple of years. This last time I looked, it still appeared incomplete and is exceeded by Rosa if you can get through the installer and open Mandriva. Rosa is actually the base for both Magia and open Mandriva. And then I signed with my name at the end of that email. Then I... Uh, 
sent him another reply. I looked through my notes from my previous base install void. I didn't install dbus hyphen elogin dash libs and dbus hyphen elogin d hyphen x11. I installed those two additional packages and created my .x initrc using exec dbus hyphen run hyphen session space openbox hyphen session. It'll be in the show notes. It worked. Thanks for pointing out the two missing packages. Now I'm trying to figure out the differences between dbus-run-session and dbus-launch. I will need to look at this later. Here are the links that I found if you're interested, and I have them in the show notes here. When using dbus-launch, X never loads and immediately exits. When using dbus-session, it works fine. And I signed my name and a little little extra. I did look at the xorg log file and there's nothing. It's like, okay, I'm starting. I'm starting. I'm shutting down. I'm shutting down. And that's it. I'm like, thanks for for no help. (laughs) So, and I did not go back to try to figure out the difference between those dbus ones because anything I read through all the different forums contradicted themselves. So, I don't think anyone really knows what the difference is. So, Let's move on to the announcements. Okay, wrapping this thing up. For chatting with us further, you may choose to join our Telegram group or our Discord channel. Dale? I'm at Dale underscore CDL on Telegram and Discord. And my email, believe it or not, is Dale underscore CDL at PM dot me. Eric? I can be reached on just about every social media and chat platform. I'm on Mastodon, Discord, Telegram, Matrix, Twitter, etc. Under my full name, Eric Adams. You can also reach me at Linux at proton.me. Moss? And you can hear me every week on Full Circle Weekly News and Mintcast. My email is bardmoss at pm.me, and I'm on Mastodon as at xyla at hosttux.social. Plus, you can find me, Dale, and Dylan at itsmoss.com. Before we go, we would like to thank all those people who make this project possible. Archive.org for storing and helping to distribute this program. Audacity, which we use for recording and editing the show. Tony Hughes for managing the website and producing and editing the podcast. Joshua Lowe for our work on our logo. All those who work on the teams which are creating, adapting, and maintaining the Linux distros we have reviewed this episode. Mid-Air Machine, creators of the song Streets of Santivo, uses our music under Creative Commons license. Thanks to Linus Torvalds for the kernel, Richard Stallman for the GNU toolkits, and all those who have worked behind the scenes on free and open source and Libre software. We'll be back next month. Thank all of you for listening. <laughs>